Let's, um, you know, we just prayed, but I'd like for us to pray one more time as we open God's word together this morning. Would you bow your heads, please? Gracious God, we thank you for this day. And it's for today that you've made, and so we rejoice and are glad in it. And Lord, we open your word this morning, and we do so expectantly. Uh, for you've told us in the book of Isaiah that your word will accomplish what, what, you've, what you've told it to accomplish in our lives, and what you've called it to accomplish. Uh, your word, while it's thousands of years old, it still speaks to us today through the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that by your Spirit you would bring encouragement to us, conviction and comfort, that your word will do what you desire for it to do in our lives. This morning and, you know, and throughout this, this series, Lord, as a, as a pastor, as someone who teaches your word, I'm grateful uh, for... for scholars, and I benefit from scholars and pastors who have, who have written and studied these matters in ways that I never can. So I'm grateful today for people like Tim Mackey and Craig Bartholomew and Phil Riken and others who have, whose works have been so beneficial to me in uh, thinking about Ecclesiastes uh, and in this message this morning. But ultimately, Lord, I'm, I pray that these words would be your words to us. Lord, that you would give us uh, ears to hear you this morning, but more, more than that, the courage to follow you wherever you lead us. And those are our prayers this morning, God. Uh, we ask them in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, you know, as Jeremy mentioned, uh, we're beginning a new series this morning in the book of Ecclesiastes. Just, uh, just a show of hands, how many of you have been through a sermon series through Ecclesiastes before? Anyone? I see like three hands. So that doesn't totally surprise me. This, it's not really a go-to book for many of us. Uh, it's not an easy book to wrap your head around either. If, um, if I were to stack on this table here uh, 12 different scholarly commentaries on the book of Ecclesiastes, we would probably have 12 different perspectives on how to interpret and approach this book. So it's not an easy book to wrap your head around, uh, but it's a beautiful, a dark, and profound book. Uh, Ecclesiastes is a book in which we keep struggling with the problems in life, and as we struggle, we learn to trust God. The preacher of Ecclesiastes is never satisfied with easy answers. In fact, part of the preacher's struggle is with the answers that he's always been given in his life. Phil Riken, who's the president of Wheaton College, says that Ecclesiastes is for people who have their doubts about God but can't stop thinking about him. The preacher has his doubts too, which allows him to speak to both skeptics and believers. Some of us will be disturbed by this book. Some of us will be disturbed that this book is even in our Bibles. Others of us will say, finally, someone gets me. You know, finally, someone sees life in all of its complexity, just like I do. Uh, So if you're the kind of person that that often says, yes, but Ecclesiastes is probably for you. 
but you know what? Ecclesiastes is really for all of us. Because this book helps us ask the biggest and some of the hardest questions that people still have today. Questions that lie at the heart of life in a fallen world. Questions like, what is the meaning of life? Why is there so much suffering and injustice in this world? Does God even care? Is life really worth living? Ecclesiastes carries a perspective on life that, uh, that we're not all that used to, but one that we need to hear because we don't hear it enough. For those of us who cherish our Bibles, uh, and I am certainly one of those, we don't expect the words that we find in Ecclesiastes. Let me, let's open, uh, if you haven't already, go ahead and open there and I'll show you what I mean. Open your books to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And I'm just going to read the first two verses for you to, sh- to show you what I mean by this. The words will be up on the screen as well. It says, The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. This is the word of the Lord. It feels strange, doesn't it? (laughs) Uh, Affirming that this is the word of the Lord. We don't expect a book that's inspired by God just to come, just like all the rest of the books in the Bible, to come right out and tell us everything is meaningless. How can someone look at everything and declare that it's meaningless? Well, we'll see in a moment just what the author means by that. You know, most of the, bu- the books in the Bible have a positive function, and they're meant to build us up, to encourage us, and to strengthen us in our faith. Ecclesiastes isn't really like that. Ecclesiastes has more of a negative function in the Bible. Ecclesiastes deconstructs everything you thought you knew about your life, your faith, and the world around you, and reduces you to your knees by the end, so that... The good news, the gospel, can in fact become good news to you. The good news comes to us as people who are generally content with life. We think we can find happiness and fulfillment in this world. And then Ecclesiastes comes along to challenge all of that. This book is challenging a common mindset. It's a mindset that was common in the writer's day. And it's common in our day, too. It's something that one scholar calls the myth of religious self-fulfillment. Every religion has some form of this. And the Christian version goes something like this. I follow Jesus so that my life will get better. Therefore, God's role in my life is to help me to be a happier person and to live a happier and healthier life. I do the religion thing. And God's going to do his thing, and my life will be enhanced because of it. And here's the potentially confusing part. We can actually make a case for this if we look at only some parts of the Bible. Uh, As an example, I want to turn to a pretty well-known passage in the book of Proverbs on this. Proverbs chapter 3. If you were a part of my Grove Old Testament survey class, we memorize this uh, because it's a it's such a great passage. So let's, 
I'm going to read these words to you. I'll show you what I mean. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. And this will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Uh, Does that sound like a good deal? It's a great deal. And Proverbs is full of this, right? If I do the right thing, then life will go well with me. If the myth of religious self-fulfillment has any grounding at all in Scripture, it's right here in the book of Proverbs. But here's the rub. The book of Proverbs is a book of Proverbs, uh, not promises. Proverbs tells us how life tends to go most of the time, maybe even 80 to 90% of the time. And generally speaking, if you live a moral life and you follow the ways of wisdom, then life, generally speaking, will go well with you. But then life happens, and we experience realities where this doesn't quite seem to work. Suffering and hardship especially have a way of exposing our core beliefs and values. Uh, You may come to a place in your life where you ask yourself, why am I following Jesus anyway? I don't seem to get, be getting anything out of it. You may think to yourself, my life isn't getting any better. In fact, my life is even getting worse. And at that point, it may be difficult to believe that God cares for you or that he cares at all about your situation or that God is even good. And what core beliefs have then been exposed? I do the Jesus thing and therefore my life should get better. Ecclesiastes helps us draw a different conclusion. What if God is not the problem? What if my, the, my problem is not God at all, but my expectations about life and how a life of faith is supposed to work, the myth of religious self-fulfillment? Ecclesiastes exposes the great distortions that we believe about life and faith. That's why we need to read the book of Job and the book of Ecclesiastes alongside the book of Proverbs. Because these books come along, they read Proverbs and they say, now hold on a minute. That's not the way the world always works. I mean, imagine Job reading the passage I just read for us in Proverbs 3. If anyone trusted in the Lord with all of his heart, it was Job. Uh, from the lips of God himself in the narrative, it says that Job was a righteous person. And yet, you don't have to read very far in the book of Job to see that it did not always bring health to his body and nourishment to his bones. Quite the opposite, actually. So while Proverbs tells us the norms, how life generally goes for most people, Job and Ecclesiastes challenge those norms. The preacher of Ecclesiastes is a debunker. He will not tolerate pretension or allow anything to appear more solid or satisfying than it really is. So Ecclesiastes reads Proverbs and thinks that's true. I can affirm that, but it's not true all of the time. And that bothers me. Uh, We need to keep the perspectives of all three of these wisdom books in mind when reading the wisdom literature. If we only read Proverbs, then our faith may become overly simplistic and black and white. 
And so we need Job and Ecclesiastes to balance out that perspective. But if we read only a book like Ecclesiastes, we may become cynical and bitter about life and faith. And we need the words of Proverbs to balance out that perspective. Together, these books uh, give us a holistic view of what it means to be a human being in relationship with a God who is working out his purposes in this world, but whose purposes we don't always understand. So, back to verse 1. The book begins, the words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. This teacher or preacher is said to be a son of David, which has led to uh, a number of different views on who wrote this book. Uh, some say it was King Solomon. Others say it was a, another descendant of David, further on down the line. And still others believe that it was written much later by an Israelite teacher who was adopting a Solomon-like persona as he wrote this book. Now, whichever of these views is correct, we have to recognize that the preacher is a character in the book and is different from the author of the book who remains anonymous. We hear the preacher's voice for most of the book, but the author introduces the preacher in the first 11 verses. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And then this author concludes the book at the end of chapter 12 and he evaluates everything this preacher has just said. So think of it this way. Your grandfather sits you down on his lap, and he wants to tell you a story about a man named Solomon who set out on this thought experiment, and this thought experiment goes something like this. What if you factored God out of the equation, and these 80 or 90 years is all you had in this life before you die? Is life worth living? Is there anything of significance or value or meaning in life? And so your grandpa introduces the tale of a preacher from long ago, and in the end, grandpa will sum it all up for you uh, and so that you can make sure you understood the story he just told you. So this week, we're going to hear the voice of grandpa as we look at the first 11 verses. The rest of the weeks, we'll hear from the preacher until the final week when, again, grandpa's going to sit us down in his lap and sum it all up for us. The author continues in verse 2 with the conclusion that the preacher comes to. So verse 2 says, Hevel, hevel, says the teacher. Utterly hevel. Everything is hevel. Now, depending on your translation, it might say meaningless, meaningless, or vanity of vanities. These translations are as good as any. Uh, The Hebrew word here is hevel. And it's used about 40 times throughout the book. And it's the preacher's central metaphor for understanding life. And it's actually a picture that he gives us. The word means something more like breath or vapor or smoke. So it's a word picture. Now, uh, Josh had his object lessons uh, over the past few weeks. And if I had mine and I didn't think Larry and the facilities crew would get upset with me, I might bring a, a pipe up here and smoke it for you. That would be the best illustration. I don't own a a pipe, but if I did, just imagine I was wearing a smoking jacket and had a nice pipe that I was smoking for you, and I puffed out a a puff of smoke. Well, what happens? 
The smoke is there, and then it's gone in a few seconds. And this is one way that the author uses this word hevel. A life is fleeting or short or temporary. It's here, and then it's gone. This isn't a primary way that the author uses the word, though. That is one way, but not the primary way. Ecclesiastes 8.14 is an example of the main way the preacher uses this word. And it says this, There's something else, Hevel, that occurs on earth. The righteous get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked get what the righteous deserve. This, too, I say, is Hevel. What does he mean here? He doesn't mean, man, that's temporary. Uh, Smoke, is it real? Yes, but the moment I try to do something with it or grab it, it's gone. It's unpredictable, it's ungraspable. And this is the preacher's view of how we experience life here under the sun. We can see that it's there, but when we get down to the business of living our lives and trying to get our hands around it, we can't get our lives to go the way we want it to go all the time. Here in 8.14, the preacher expresses that as human beings, we have a sense of justice. You do something bad, you should get punished for it. You live a good life, then you should experience that success in your life. But does life always work that way? No. And that's hevel. Another word for it might be enigma or paradox. Back to chapter 1 again. Verse 3 says, What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Now that phrase, under the sun, is another favorite of the authors. Used about 30 times, and it's one of the keys to understanding this book. Where do we experience this hevel and all of life's futility and frustration? Where do we experience that? Everywhere that the sun shines. And that's the main idea of Ecclesiastes, that life is hevel under the sun. Here the author is setting up the preacher's thought experiment. The preacher's going to look at all of life, and he's going to ask, what do we have of lasting and meaningful value? And he'll tell us we can get some good things in life, a good meal. We can meet a spouse that we enjoy spending time with. Uh, we can find some satisfaction in our work, but all of these things have their limits. And at the same time, some seriously hevel things are going to happen to us, and for him, that throws a whole wrench in any possibility of understanding the meaning of life. Now, all of us are coming at this several thousands of years later, post-Jesus. And we know that that's not the whole picture of life. We know that there's a God who rules over the sun. But the preacher knows that as well. In fact, the preacher is begging us to see this God. He wants to show us the weariness of our existence so that we will not expect to find meaning and satisfaction in earthly things, but only in God above. Nothing else satisfies but God alone, as the preacher discovers for himself. We have to wait until the end of the book, in chapter 12, to discover the preacher's conclusions. We're not meant to jump to the conclusion of the preacher's thought experiment, though. We're meant to journey with him and to struggle with him. 
We were meant to struggle with the problems of life, and as we struggle, we learn to trust God with the questions, even when, and maybe especially when, we don't have all the answers. This is how following Jesus works, too. It's not just about what we get at the end, but about the people we become along the way. So the author sets up the preacher's words in these first 11 verses with a poem. And a good title for this poem might be Same Old, Same Old. The author observes a lot of activity, but nothing ever changes. So he wonders, why should we bother at all? He begins by looking at the elemental things of nature, earth, air, fire, water, and he sees no real change anywhere. So verse 4 of chapter 1, he writes, Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. And we can easily attest to this. Mention Ted Williams, Shirley Temple, and Johnny Carson, and young people will say, who? But mention Ariana Grande or Ryan Tedder, and the elderly would wonder, who are these people? Uh, When I was a boy, an oldie station would play music on the radio from the 40s and 50s. And now I'm horrified when every once in a while they throw a song in there from the 80s. I'm like, I am not old. Um, In the book of Genesis, we see this too. Uh, In the life of a man named Joseph, he delivered his people from slavery in Egypt and and provided for them, well, he provided for them in a time time of famine is what he did. And he provided for his people. They settle in Genesis, or settle in Egypt at the end of Genesis. But then the beginning of Exodus picks up several hundred years later, and it says that a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing at all, came to power in Egypt. So it didn't take long for even a great man like Joseph to be forgotten. This coming and going of generations can haunt us. Verse 5, the sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and around it goes ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams came from, there they return again. So all of this activity and nothing ever changes, but the earth remains forever. When we die, the sun will still rise the next morning, the waters will tide and the wind will blow. And other human beings after us will likewise come, take their turn, and go. So our worst days and our best days fade away. Our celebrations and our tragedies disappear. And yet we ache to know that the joys of this life don't last forever. Well, then the author moves from nature to human experience, and he observes the very same phenomenon. There are, things are done over and over again without any real profit or progress. In verse 8, he says, All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. The, the uh, contemporary English version translates this, All of life is far more boring than words can say. You know, some, some people try to escape the hevel of life by filling their senses with 
with what they see and hear, you know, through YouTube and Instagram, Facebook and Netflix, but they can never get enough. You know, I can listen to my favorite album, and when it's over, I just want to listen to it all again. My ears are never full. They're never satisfied. A couple of months ago, our son, Jeremiah, came home from school, and he came home sad, and we asked him what was wrong. Uh, and he was sad that his friend Dion Tavius celebrated his birthday at school, and he wanted to celebrate his birthday at school, even though he just celebrated his birthday three days earlier in school. Some of us would gladly give our birthdays to Jeremiah if it meant we didn't have to grow a year older. But like a child, three days after our birthday party, we grow bored even with good things. We always want more. Verse 9, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It's, it's, it was here already long ago. It was here before our time. Uh, can we really say that anything is new? You know, we often think our technology is new, but every generation has had to wrestle with the use of technology. Even Plato, in his writings, debated whether a new technology called writing was all that worthwhile. Um, We might look at our cell phones and think, well, that's pretty new. But social commentator Marshall McLuhan had a theory about technology. He said that all technology really does is take our bodies and create new fancy extensions of them. Is that any more true? <laughs> is it, I mean, it's more true today than it's ever been with the use of our cell phones. In verse 11, no one remembers the former generations. Even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Think about this. Those who just graduated high school were barely born when 9-11 happened. They don't know from personal experience what September 11 means, an event that profoundly changed the lives of a generation, becomes a chapter in a history book summarized for bored seventh graders studying for a test. Or what about this? Do any of you remember the name of your great-great-grandfather? The more things change, the more they stay the same. And if it ever seems like there really is something new under the sun, it's only because we've forgotten about what's happened before. The way people will forget about us one day. When there's nothing left of us except a digital image floating in cyberspace. So the author sets up the preacher's thought experiment by describing the physical world and its endless repetitions. No goal is ever reached, and human beings have the same character as the world around them. Just as the sea is never filled, neither is the ear. And he says that this endless repetition excludes the possibility of anything being genuinely new, lasting, or fully satisfying in this world. And whether we clutch or Whatever we clutch or collect or strive for will soon fade from memory. And the author says, where is the gain in all of that? Ecclesiastes relentlessly shows us what a small, 
fleeting and fragile place we're in as human beings. Living in a broken, compromised, and sometimes monotonous world. Later in chapter 12, the author will tell us that this book is like a goad. It's like a a stick with nails on it. And reading and studying Ecclesiastes is going to hurt. It's going to poke you and prod you. And wherever you have found or wherever you have a distorted view of yourself, your God, or your expectations on how life should work, Ecclesiastes will expose that in you. There's no escape from a life that is hevel under the sun. It's a condition imposed upon this world as a result of humanity's disobedience against God. Our lives are fragile and tenuous because our sin has tainted every aspect of this world. And the preacher recognizes this. And, and next week, we'll look at a handful of passages where the preacher says that actually embracing that life is hevel can be a strange gift. A gift that can enrich our lives rather than diminish them. But there's no escaping it. And if there is no escape from a life that is hevel under the sun, then rescue will have to come from somewhere else. And the gospel is God's story of redemption that finds its climax in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And God invites us to play a small part in his grand story in the restoration of the whole world. The myth of religious self-fulfillment, by the way, reverses that. Uh, The myth of religious self-fulfillment says that I am inviting God into my life, into my story, wherever he may seem to fit, as long as he doesn't mess things up too bad, to make my life work out really well for me. It makes me the center of the universe rather than God. Life is not full of guarantees, but what if God's promise to me under the sun is not to solve all of my problems and make all of my dreams come true? What if God's promise to me, which we'll celebrate in the moment around the table, and which is later revealed to us in the cross, is that God enters into the hevel of human existence and he takes it upon himself on the cross. We titled this series, Everything Matters, because every decision we make matters, but it matters in ways that we may never see. We may never grasp why certain hardships enter our lives. We may never grasp why life sometimes doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And we will experience times when the hevel of our lives seems uh, uh, just unbearable, And overwhelming. But God didn't give us a coping mechanism to deal with Hevel, which is really what the myth of religious self-fulfillment is all about. Instead, God gave us a Savior to deliver us from a life that is Hevel. And just as Hevel casts its dark shadow across every area of our lives, Jesus Christ claims every area of our lives is rightfully his and in need of redemption. So our lives are hevel. The gospel is not. Would you bow your heads and pray with me, please?
Lord God, we thank you for the profound truths in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, a book that is a challenge to study and understand. Uh, but Lord, you uh, give us insights so that we may love you better and so that we may follow Jesus more faithfully. And for that, we're grateful. And Lord, this morning, as we looked at our lives and the world around us, as it's tainted by sin, and all the futility and frustration that we face in this world, is a result of our disobedience against you and how that's affected every piece of this world. And Lord, you show us why redemption is necessary. And why you didn't give up on this world, but you sent Jesus to to live the perfect life and to give his life for the sake of this whole world so that this world may be put back together again and that we may have a relationship with you and all of its fullness and abundance that you promised to us. And Lord, as we gather now around the table, I pray that you would meet us here in a profound way. That we would see you in all of your goodness in your grace towards us. We pray all this in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.